This is Joe Basso from Music Radar, the place for music makers, and I'm speaking with Danny Goldberg. Danny runs Gold Village Entertainment. You've also, in your time, been the PR executive for Led Zeppelin. You've managed Nirvana. You ran Atlantic Records, Mercury Records. Is there anything I'm leaving out? You've done a lot. I'm old. <laughs> done a lot, but uh, it's, a, it's a very generous introduction. Well, you, uh, you, you have had an, an illustrious career, which you detail in your new book called Bumping Into Geniuses. Can you explain why you call the book Bumping Into Geniuses? I can. Uh, one of my jobs was president of Atlantic Records, and um, uh, the title is derived from uh, a story about Ahmed Erdogan, who is the founder and late chairman of, of Atlantic Records. Uh, and it was told at his memorial service uh, by uh, David Geffen, one of many people who owed a big chunk of their careers to um, it, and uh, when I, when Geffen uh, explained that when he was a young man, he was trying to figure out, he asked Ahmed, how do I get rich in the music business? And uh, and Ahmed said, the way to get rich is to wander around until you bump into a genius, and when you do, hold on and don't let go. That was a story that was frequently repeated when I was at Atlantic, not just because it's funny, but because it, it uh, indicated a clarity about the role of artists in the music business, uh, you know, post Post Beatles, post late sixties, once artists developed the, you know, clout that they that they had and still have, that 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 they were really uh, creating uh, as responsible or more responsible for creating the money uh, that was generated from from music, certainly in rock and roll, you know, than distributors were, or recording studios, or you know, or, or bankers or, or promo people. So it, it, it was both the story about Ahmed and it's a, it's a story about my role in the business, which is to try to, to try to do exactly what he said, to try to bump into geniuses and to try to hold on to them. One thing I was struck by in the book is the fact that you did come up in the business at a time when there was almost no blueprint, really, for doing what you do. The book is really, I mean, in, in as much as you talk about the artist that you bump into it's really about your own invention and reinvention did you have any idea at that time back in the early 60s or the mid 60s what you wanted to do well just to not make me sound older than i actually am i I got my first job at the age of 18 in late 68 so i started in the late 60s what i wanted to do was move out of my parents apartment and get my own place and uh through a accident of fate. It was near the New York Times for a clerical job at Billboard. I didn't know what Billboard was. I thought it was a magazine about signs on the highways, and only after I started working there the first week or two, I realized it was about the music business. I didn't understand that uh, there was this whole infrastructure in between the artists that I loved and and, and people like me. Uh, I was a, a kid who went to high school and graduated in the late 60s and, and, and uh, loved rock and roll that was going on at that time and one of millions of kids who felt those records by Dylan and the Stones and Country Joe and the Fish and Phil Oaks and others were somehow speaking for me as well as to me but I didn't understand that there was a business. Once I understood that people could get paid money uh, to go to concerts and write their opinions about them, uh, that seemed like a really good job. Uh, I could get free records, free concerts and and see my name in print so I I did everything I could to become one of the people that occasionally reviewed the shows for for the magazine 
you know, in the early years of my career, that's just what I wanted to do was to be a successful rock uh, journalist. And that was that was my goal and my horizon and my self-definition. And only when I when I realized I wasn't good enough to to be a you know to write for the New York Times or somebody where that wasn't going to happen, uh, did I start thinking about getting into the business itself. And uh, you know, um, there are various reasons why I was not successful as a writer. But one of them was that I was too much of a fan to to really have a critical eye. I just I just loved the people that I loved and. That's my interest in the whole thing was being a fan, not being a critic. And over the course of time, I started to develop more of a work ethic and more ambition. But that wasn't for, you know, I was knocking around for several years before I started to develop the goals. Of course, one of the major bands that you came to work with, one of the early bands, was Led Zeppelin. Which leads me to ask, what are your thoughts on what's going on with them currently? I think it's fine as long as they don't call it Led Zeppelin. You know, to, to me, the idea of calling something Led Zeppelin that doesn't have Robert Plant in it is absurd. It would be equally absurd to call something Led Zeppelin that didn't have Jimmy Page in it. It's just, and, and John Paul Jones is pretty important, too, but, but the lead singer is particularly important in any band. And uh, I think for them to create some other band uh, with another singer and call it something else will probably be interesting, depending on the quality of the work. I mean, those are very talented guys. They seem to be healthy. and But to call a Led Zeppelin would, would, would be absurd, and I can't believe they'll try to do it. It would, it would be the laughing stock of any rock and roll fan, you know. It would be like having the Rolling Stones without Mick Jagger or, you know, Beatles without John Lennon and Paul McCartney. It's just absurd. Have you spoken to either Jimmy or Robert recently about this? I haven't recently. Uh, I did go to the show that they did, the reunion Led Zeppelin show in London, I guess it was about a year ago. I think it was officially a tribute to Ahmed Erdogan. Uh, it was really a celebration of Led Zeppelin, and it was a thrill to be there. It was an extraordinarily good show. Jimmy was playing particularly well, and there's no question that they can do that. And my guess is that when Robert Plant, uh, at some point, he'll do a few more years touring with Alison Krauss. He's having this amazing success yep. with Alison Krauss. I mean, that album may win the album of the year Grammy. It's certainly one of the most. It's certainly one of the best albums of the year, and I, I believe they're doing another one. And you know, at some point, when he's run the course of this cycle in his life, and you know, which has got to be immensely rewarding for him to get this kind of success under his own name, my guess is that he'll pick up the phone and call Jimmy Page, and they'll they'll do some billion dollar Led Zeppelin tour. But <laughs> but uh, uh, you know, it would be insane for these other guys to call something they do Led Zeppelin. It's not at all insane for them to work together and make music under another name. But, but no, I, I haven't. You know, uh, it's it's. Uh, I I uh, when I've run into them over the years, it's been very nice. But uh, you know, I haven't worked with them professionally in many years, and they're not like social friends of mine. So, as uh, I, I I have not spoken to them in the last few years. One gets the feeling, however, uh, that that Robert is almost past Led Zeppelin now. At least he some of the things he's saying. If you look between the lines, uh, do you think that's true? I think he's very proud of being successful without Led Zeppelin. Very few people are in big bands who have this kind of success on their own, and I think he wants to keep the focus on that. But that doesn't mean that for the rest of his life he's not going to want to do something with Led Zeppelin. It means right now he doesn't want to do it. One of the other stories, of course, that's current in the music news is Guns N' Roses. If you were managing Axl Rose during these past few years, how would you have advised him to handle things differently? First of all, I don't know Axl Rose. So, you know, until you know an artist, you don't really know. You, you don't know the nuances of, of, of what they can and can't do and what they're comfortable doing. You know, uh, probably it would have been better if he didn't wait so long to put out a record because, uh, 
you, you know, you know, you know, because the level of expectation, you know, you know, became very difficult for anybody to live up to. But I, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't presume to uh, criticize the way someone else managed an artist. That's, I wouldn't want anyone doing that to me. Like Cameron Crowe, you were one, one of the first rock writers to get Led Zeppelin. Why do you think that was? Why, why did so many... Well, I got them. I know why I got them. I got them because it was my job, you know, because I was able to, because uh, I was working for a PR firm and they became a client. So I was lucky to be in that position. And only after seeing them live a few times that I really understand how good they were artistically, because I was of that generation, uh, you know, I was 22, 23, and I was six or seven years older than 15 or 16-year-olds who were their core audience for Zeppelin. I think the reason that the critics didn't get them was that the critics were my age or a year or two older and, you know, had that generational myopia that's so common where people just think the music of the next generation is not as good as their favorites. I, why Cameron got them is he was younger. You know, I mean, that's why Bob Hilburn, when I did my book, I asked him about... You know, he said that's what, precisely why he assigned Cameron to interview Zeppelin when Cameron was 15 or 16, because he, he recognized that he didn't understand this, and that yet there was a big audience for it, and that he needed the eyes of, uh, of somebody of the generation of, of their audience to, uh, to write about it. So that's the brilliance of Bob Hilburn as an editor, and I think that was one of Cameron's first assignments. It was certainly his highest profile assignment at that time. But, uh, you know, the, the rock critical uh, uh, culture had come around, you know, 67-ish when Crawdaddy, uh, 66, 67, when Crawdaddy started. I think Crawdaddy started in 66, 67, Rolling Stone starts around that same time. There are people at the, at the dailies like, uh, and magazines starting to write about rock and roll because it's becoming a bigger part of the culture. And, and uh, they embraced artists like Dylan and, and the Jefferson Airplane and the Doors and Stones, of course, as well as the Beatles, obviously, had come a little earlier, and they were really, you know, Hendrix, and you know, they were they were both generationally connected with 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 what was big then, and and they were also uh, important in a way that they would not be a few years later, because by '69, when Led Zeppelin's first album came out, uh, a rock radio, what was then called underground radio, had exploded across the North American continent, and suddenly it wasn't 30 or 40 critics that were defining an artist. It was, uh, you know, putting them on the map. It was these stations playing Led Zeppelin after a week. They were like big. So I think in addition to being generationally removed from the core audience, for Zeppelin, I think a lot of the critics were kind of jealous that their power had been diminished and that rock radio had supplanted them as, as the number one uh, gatekeepers to the, to the rock audience. But, you know, I'm just theorizing about this. I can't prove it. When you were Led Zeppelin's publicist, you worked, of course, with their manager, Peter Grant, whose style is legendary and whose style couldn't be more different from yours. What did you learn from him? Well, I learned about uh, believing in the artist and, and, and seeing trees and, and understanding the power of the artist. So, you know, one thing we have in common is intense devotion to, to, the, to, the, to the artist that we work for. You know, and that's what I learned from him. He 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 really uh, figured that out at a time when concert promoters and record companies and booking agents, you know, uh, kind of had this uh, authority. And he just challenged it. You know, uh, he he insisted on ninety percent of the profits from concerts instead of fifty or sixty percent, and he got it because he realized Led Zeppelin was going to sell out no matter who promoted the concert. And uh, that uh, that fundamental insight and attitude of his was one of the great teachings, you know, that I had. And he also influenced many, many other uh, managers. So although we came from different backgrounds, he's older than me and he came out of the World War II generation. And, and, and uh, you know, Cockney came from a poor family in the U.K. Cockney 
tough guy, and I was kind of a wimpy uh, pseudo-intellectual <laughs> Jewish guy from the baby boom generation. You know, we certainly, uh, uh, you know, I certainly learned, uh, you know, a lot from him about, uh, the, you know, aggressively representing an artist, you know, and, and uh, understanding what the, what the artist's power is. Now, obviously, not every artist has, has or had the power of Led Zeppelin or the popularity of Led Zeppelin. But uh, you know, relative to each situation, there's a there's a lesson there, and and, and he was a great uh, great mentor in that way. Were there any times where he actually scared you? Oh, just sitting next to him was scary. He was so big. I mean, Peter Grant was 300 pounds. He wore these, uh, you know, turquoise jewelry that looked like uh, brass knuckles. Uh, you know, he, he he had been a security guy and a professional wrestler. And just sitting next to him in a limo, when it took a left turn, he'd lean over and squish you. He, he always liked to have that air of physical intimidation was always part of how he interacted. He liked the people around him, including me, to be scared of him. And, and he was a intimidating guy. But he was good to me in retrospect. He never, he hired me, he promoted me, and he taught me a lot. And But but he was a scary guy because you knew that if he lost his temper, he could really hurt you. I never saw him hurt anybody, but I know he did. What was it like for a young guy as yourself at the time to be in the lap of rock star excess. I mean, you know, now these tales are the the stuff of legend, but you were actually there. Yeah, yeah. Could you not believe what you were seeing? Well, you know, it's funny. There's a, there's a photographer named Neil Preston sure. uh, who just sent me as a Christmas present a picture that he found from his contact sheets from the 1975 Zeppelin tour. Wow. And it's Robert Plant. Uh, it's on their airplane called the, you know, which kind of they branded the Starship, and you know they kind of painted their logo on it. I mean, they were just renting it for the tour. And it's Robert is standing with a big grin on his face, making some amusing comment. And I'm seated behind him on one of the couches in the plane, um, fast asleep. <laughs> and <laughs> you know, it's really gave me such a laugh because I was so caught up in just trying to do a good job and trying to please them and trying to to just to do my job that you know and I was at a point I had done a lot of drugs in the last year of high school and the year I got out of high school and by the time I was in the music business I was kind of a non-druggy I just not 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 because of any great virtue I just gotten scared you know right. certain things happened to me and it was just so I, I was not a big partier I was just it was exhausting I had this list of things to do and um calls to make and uh, and things to get done uh, with getting people photo passes or making sure the interviews were done and then getting the Xeroxes done at the clips to show them and then listening to whatever it was that was important to uh, to Peter at the moment. And it just, uh, you know, was, uh, I didn't really enjoy it as much as, you, I, I loved the status of it and the environment knew it was important to my career. I knew that it was the biggest act I'd ever worked with and that I had a relationship with them that I hadn't previously had with artists. But, you know, I was busy, you know, and I was tired when I wasn't busy, and I wasn't doing cocaine. And um, although there was plenty of debauchery around me, I was really... I was just begin. I was I was in the early stages of having a work ethic and wanting to be known as somebody that did a good job, and that was where I was in my life. So it was very interesting, and I'm very grateful for having been around it. But 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 I I, I don't myself have fabulous memories of excess. <laughs> Jumping ahead to Nirvana, who you of course worked with, if it was today and you met somebody as creative and talented but as tortured as Kurt Cobain, would you still work with them? Oh, sure. If, 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 if they, you know, I mean, 
the other, you know, the it's not only talented and tortured; it was also commercially talented. I mean, let's face it. I met Nirvana; they were the big buzz band. I mean, they'd already put out Bleach, and five labels wanted them, and I, I knew they were going to be something. I didn't know they were going to be as successful as uh, uh, as they became. But uh, you know, I, I have to revolve my decisions around the business and if I think uh, if someone's a good person I mean Kurt Cobain was a very nice person he didn't hurt anybody else he just hurt himself and it, it got it got worse as as he got more you know more money you know I, I mean no two people are the same no two times are the same but you, right. you, you know I, I, I uh, if I'm lucky enough to meet somebody as talented as Kurt Cobain again I'm not going to and if I'm lucky enough to know it, how talented they are, you know, I don't recognize everybody's talent. Certain artists just kind of push a button in me, and other people who are really talented, I only realize later on how good they are. But, you know, there's an enormous number of nuances to the question, and, you know, uh, there's no, life isn't like that. You don't get an exact replica of a situation. So if I knew somebody was about to kill themselves, I probably wouldn't want to work with them. But, you know, I don't think you ever know that. Why do you think Courtney Love is such a polarizing figure? Well, she's, uh, on the one hand, extremely talented and uh, has touched a lot of rock fans with her songs, especially women. So that's one side of the polarity. She's genuinely talented and genuinely unique. And the other side is that she's had a history of angry public outbursts and drug abuse, you know. So, and she was married to, you know, this incredibly famous rock star who killed himself. So those elements lead to uh, polarity. You know, I, I am a fan of hers. I don't like every single sentence she's ever, utter, ever, ever uttered, but I'm a fan of her music. And in general, she's been a good friend to me over the years, but she's certainly pissed people off over the years. And, you know, when you piss people off, you're polarizing. Was it hard to be a friend to her during the years that she was married to Kurt? Not for me. She was great to me. I mean, it was painful when Kurt was self-destructive. It's painful being around anyone who's a drug abuser. And she, uh, you know, so those were difficult things to experience. And you feel very helpless. So you try to get people into therapy or you try to get them into a spiritual path. You try to get them into a 12-step program. You try to uh, do interventions. And, and, and I was part of a groups that tried to do all those things uh, and individually tried to accomplish those things. But ultimately, you can't uh, force people to do any of those things, you know. It's just not, they're not children, they're not employees, they're, you know, empowered adults who, who can say uh, yes or no. Um, you know, that was, uh, that was of course, uh, painful, but in, in, in terms of how she was with me and the role she played, I think mostly was a positive one. I mean, he was crazy about her, uh, and she was, uh, you know, they had a tempestuous relationship, as you would expect, two very creative people with drug problems. But, uh, you know, I mostly remember that they loved each other. And, you know, I, I, I found her to be, when it came to the business managers, because after all, my job was to be the manager of the band. And then later I was sort of the ex-manager, but who was still kind of a consultant when I was at Atlantic Records. You know, I found on business matters she was quite intelligent and, and a constructive, uh, constructive, uh, you know, voice in, in conversations. You know, I wasn't uh, their therapist or their nanny or their or their best friend. I, I'm, in general, a fan of hers, although she certainly, you know, like all of us, has her dark side, and her dark side's been a lot more public than most people's dark side. Had he lived, do you think 
Kurt would have come to terms with fame the way John Lennon seemed to right before Yeah, I down. definitely do. I don't think Kurt's big problem was fame. His big problem was self-destructiveness and a terrible childhood and an addictive personality. He was doing heroin and having stomach pains and prone to depression before he was ever famous. Fame didn't make those things happen. They just exacerbated qualities he's always had. I, I believe that uh, if he had gotten into his... Th- I, I think there's something about uh, you know, being in your 20s and going through that that's particularly difficult for people. I don't exactly understand why so many people died or killed themselves at 27 from rock and roll, but I think there's something to it. And I, I, I think he certainly would have gotten used to being famous and know how to control it. And you see people like Springsteen or Pearl Jam or Neil Young or all these other very sensitive people, some of whom had drug problems in the past, uh, you know, cope as they get older. Uh, so there's no, I, I always felt if he could just make it to 30, that it, things would be a little easier for him, but he didn't. You made the transition from uh, management to the other side of the fence, so working uh, in record companies. What would you say to a young person now who wanted to go into the music business? Is there the same rush or the, the same opportunities that there were when you were getting into it? Not financially, there aren't. They're the same uh, cultural and emotional opportunities, but financially it's a smaller business because of the decline of record companies. So I think the good news about that is it's attracting people that really love music, because if you just want to get rich, uh, you know, the music business is probably not at the top of the list. But you can make money in it, but it's, it's, it, the total amount of money being made is, is less for the moment. Uh, so I think if you love music, uh, it's incredible to get paid anything to be part of it, you know, and and to uh, to be close to it, you know, and if you don't love music, you definitely shouldn't be in the music business, especially not now. Where do you see the business going in? I don't pretend to have a crystal ball. I know that concerts are going to prevail because the phenomenon of cell phones and computers and the ability to get uh, recordings for free doesn't obviate the power and appeal of a live event. So what we know is that live music is doing fine. I mean, obviously, it's going to go down with the rest of the economy if people are unemployed and can't buy other things. They're not going to be able to pay the same price for tickets. But 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 relative to the economy, the live music business is going to be fine, I think, for the rest of my life because I think it's a social experience and an intimate, unique experience that you can't get through an electronic uh, device. You know, it's the same reason people go to want to see the World Series or the Super Bowl, even though they could watch it on TV. So I think that I think that that's clearly a business that's very solid, and I think the record business is very damaged and may never recover. And the uh, licensing business is uh, is growing because there's a bigger worldwide. I mean, the flip side of the internet eviscerating the ability to monetize recordings is that it has created more fans. So these fans will do things like buy, uh, you know, buy T-shirts or you know, be attractive to advertisers to use or video games to use. So, you know, it's it's a smaller business, but it's still a meaningful business. The new book is called Bumping Into Geniuses. There are so many fascinating stories in it, many of which we can't go into now just because of time. But, Danny, thank you very much for spending some time with me. Thanks so much for uh, talking to me. I really, really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate it, too. It's a, it's a fabulous book. This is Joe Basso for Music Radar, the place for music makers, and I've been speaking with Danny Goldberg. Danny, take care. Thanks, man.